Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode 122 of the North Meet South web podcast. Okay, big news. Uh, number one, shave my mustache. That was big news number one. Big news number two, I am drinking a root beer float. And apparently, Michael has never in his life tasted root beer because it's not a thing mm. in Australia. Yeah. We've got like shops that import those kinds of drinks here mm-hmm. you know they, they, we've got like american candy stores and things like that mm-hmm. and they import all of that stuff on mass but i don't know root beer is just not something that it's I've not like ever considered is it is it a sweet um so it's weird or is it like a bitter somewhere between like a sweet, it is sweet like a soda it, pop it is and... sweet but it is like there is different types of root beer so i was mm-hmm. a uh, root beer of the month sort of thing i had i had that for a year one time for my for my mm-hmm. birthday so I'd get four root beers every month. It was awesome. But yeah, some of them are really bitter because there's like a different, there's like a, these different profile flavor or sorry, flavor profiles that each root beer sort of has, but they're in different quantities. So yep. some of them like have a really, really strong, like black licorice flavor, which to me is disgusting. Yeah, like a sarsaparilla. Yeah, yeah, I do not like that flavor. But then there's another, there's, there's a lot of other sort of flavors in there. Like spearmint is actually one of the flavors in there as well. So like if you have like one of those white and green Mm -hmm. little circle mints that actually that taste is present in root beer. So it's a weird combination. I feel like it's almost like a cultural, like it tastes sweet to me, tastes good to me, but Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if it tastes, if it would taste good to you in your first bite or first bite, first taste. The reason I said bite is because I was thinking of, um, uh, the same thing Vegemite. for you guys, Vegemite. <laughs> exactly. Like to you guys, it's like, right. oh yeah, this is yeah. good stuff. I grew up eating it, and for us, it's sort of like, oh boy, that's Correct. a different flavor profile that I've never really experienced before. And so, um, yeah, so it's like Stockholm syndrome, basically. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's what it is. But, but like for food, yeah, for horrible food. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Like I, I like it. I think, mm-hmm. I think you'd probably like it at least, depending on which type you got. Also, we were talking about right. this earlier, right? Is um, my favorite type of root beer. That I tried that whole year was a was one called Moose Whiz, and they mm-hmm. were sued and had to stop making it, and they had to change the name to Bear Whiz. And now it's like Funny. it's twenty five dollars for a four pack, and then it costs thirty seven dollars to ship it here. And I'm like, yeah, a little bit too rich, a little bit too rich for my blood. That's uh, <laughs> that's a bit like basically anything here. Like if you want to if you want to buy something from the US, then you better be prepared to pay exorbitant shipping fees. Yeah, that's it's um. <clears throat> Let's see, what is it? 25 plus, oops, 25 plus 37, and then divide that yeah, by four. And you're talking about, oh my gosh, why is it not working? Okay, yeah, that's like $15 a bottle. That's I, It's not worth yeah. it. Not worth it. You're getting into alcohol. Ter- Although your alcohol is really cheap compared to what we have over here, I think. Because like, our alcohol gets taxed. Mm. Um, so, you know, you'd expect a bottle. Like, what would you pay for like a bottle of beer or, or a can of Dude, I don't even know. Whereas, like, I literally, I don't. Because well, you don't drink. Do you? I don't drink. You know, I don't. I've, I have drank before, but I don't drink on the regular, right? And so, mm-hmm. for me to know like what's recent prices on like, you know, a, a bottle of beer, I have no idea. I just couldn't even tell you. Well, let's. What do, what do we? Let's look this up. Where do we? Where do we buy beer? Like, if you were to go into like a Walgreens, right? Sure. Is that a thing? Sure. Yeah, is Walgreens pharmacy. Is that a yeah. thing? Yeah, is that, you could buy. I, is that a place you can buy beer? I'm not sure if you can. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure know. if you can Walmart. I don't know. There's like, like yeah. what's your supermarket chain? Yeah, Walmart. What's Meyer. the one that Amazon bought? Let's see here. I suppose you've got Target as well, which is a bit different to our Target. Our Target's more like a 
you'd go and buy clothes and toys and things like that. But your target, you can do grocery shopping and things like that. And there okay, as well, so right? like it looks like a six pack of Coors Light is like seven twenty seven. It was just like the first thing that came up. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. So it's like bottles. Yeah. Okay. Right. And then like so a twenty four pack of cans is uh, sixteen bucks. So okay. Okay. So we got here Coors Light. 4.2, 18-pack, you're paying thirteen ninety eight, And then you pay, I guess, you know, you're, do you pay, you'd pay tax on that as well? So Yeah, you'd pay you, tax on it. So it's like depending on which state, probably like 9%. Yeah. Okay. So let's say that 13 is now like $15 US. So we call that 20 Australian for an 18-pack. Mm. Now, if we go to Dan Murphy's is where you would buy. I wonder if we can get cause here. Cause, probably not. It's not a thing. Is it a thing? Do we import it? Fosters. I should have looked up Fosters. No, no cause. <laughs> Fosters, right? Yeah. Cooper's pale. So I'm anyway, it's like maybe so like... we drink here. Maybe like, what? $5 more? I don't know. There's Fosters. Fosters is two forty forty eight a can. $2.48 a can. So if we were to buy a 24-pack, you're looking at $53. So we're paying twice as much for six extra bottles, basically. Dang. $4.79 each. Dang. Um, so yeah, yeah you, cause I, th- yeah. So whatever. Hey, it's vegan. Apparently yeah. Yeah, is vegan. <laughs> hey, learn something new every day. So cool. we've got, we do have a lot of good stuff to talk about today. Actually, we've got some uh, we do. interesting bits. We're going to, we're going to talk about, um, you had mentioned at the top before we got started that we were going to talk. Oh, sorry. One more thing real quick. Sorry, folks. So they don't have root beer, but they do have, so they do have like not root beer floats, but like coca-cola floats and they call those we call it a spider a spider and i, I couldn't don't... i couldn't begin to tell you why like why do we call it a spider drink regional names in australia and new zealand an ice cream float is known as a spider because once the carbonation hits the ice cream it forms a spider web like reaction ah so there you go so well, that makes sense i mean, it, it, it's typical that you'd have it with coca-cola mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. you can do it with like, like you could do it with any soft drink any uh you know, soda pop or whatever sure, you sure. guys want to call it yeah. over there. Like it tastes fine. Yep. But your your Coke is also different to what ours is because you use fructose syrup, I think, yeah. in yours and we we don't. So yours is a bit bit different in flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been drinking Coke No Sugar for five years, so probably a bit disastrous anyway. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like it, I, I used to love it when I was younger. Like and you'd get, you know, lime or, well, you know, not lime soft drink, but a lime spider, different, different flavor ice cream. But it's it's usually it's usually you would have just vanilla ice cream in in in, in a soft soda, drink of some yeah, sure. As a spider, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. But then, like we, I think the closest thing that we'd have to to root beer in Australia is like creaming soda, which you also have. Yeah, if I'm not, we don't like, call it got, creaming soda. We call it cream soda. You've called it cream soda, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you've got like vanilla cream soda, and you've got brown cream soda, and things like that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yep. You don't know. As, I mean, I we mean, have cream just... soda, and then you have you might have vanilla cream soda. Yeah, I guess cream soda isn't typically vanilla. Yeah, so you do. You would have you'd have both, right? Mm. Yeah. Anyway, and there is like there's a specific flavor of it that we get here that that you have over there, which is not it's not Dr Pepper. Um, Mug. Mm, I'd have to see a picture of the can to know it if I saw it. Um, but yeah, we get like we get that imported over here. Gotcha. You know, Bund- Bundaberg makes it in Australia, ah, which is a pretty nice. Yeah, one. We, it's a, you have Bundaberg over here. I've seen some. I've had so Bundaberg Bund- root beer before. Right. Yeah. So Bundaberg is in Queensland. They make a Burgundy creaming soda, which is made with I think red red grapes, maybe. Oh, interesting. Um, 
which is pretty nice. There's like Kirk's Bundaberg and Bigfoot are the ones that, that, that make it here. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's funny that they so, have yeah. Bundaberg root beer here, but you guys don't have Bundaberg root. You just have Bundaberg mm. cream soda here. Cream soda there. I assume I assume you'd have um, uh, Bundaberg rum as well. A and W is the is the. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. Mm. Anyway, so yeah, very um, very uh, highly te- technical discussion to, to open this one up. Indeed, always always fun to learn about it's the cross cultural stuff. Like right, yeah. It's like I, I was watching. I fall into the TikTok well. I think we've spoken about this before, yes, and I go yes. in there. Like at bedtime, and then it's one o'clock, and I'm oh, shouldn't have done that. Um, but there was a Trevor Noah was talking about this new Lizzo song, and how, like the the language is different. Like she she used some terminology in a song of hers that is quite common with, um, you know, black culture in America, which is like to spaz, which means to like party. You know, we're gonna have whatever. Now in in Australia and and in the UK, like spaz is usually used as a derogatory term for. Uh, like people with a like a mental disability or a mental yeah yeah you know, something mean, like that, and yeah. so and so someone pointed that out to Lizzo and Lizzo was like, you know, I didn't know that. I'm sorry. I, and she changed the words of the song and then like everyone piled on because like why would you do that? Like and it's like this this is this is the thing. Like if someone tells you something is like offensive or it means something different in a different part of the world, it's not like okay, well, I don't care. It's like, oh, well, I didn't know that. It's about, you know, changing your understanding and broadening horizons and things like that. So I think, you know, she's absolutely done the right thing to sort of say, okay, I recognize that this is different and I'm just going to change it. Like she's, I've just gone and changed the words to my popular song because I didn't realize that it was, it had a negative connotation in a different part of the world. And mm. everyone's like, why would you do that? You know, like. Yeah, I mean, I, we don't, we, we wouldn't have, I don't think I would necessarily tag it as somebody that has a mental disability, but like I, if you called somebody a spaz, it certainly wouldn't be a compliment here. It's like you're spas- yeah, right. spastic. You know what I mean? Like you're yeah. unpredictable. Sure. You're crazy sort of deal. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Hey, let's talk about some saloon, shall we? Uh, you mentioned that you saloon. wanted to talk about saloon a little bit. So let's talk about it. What What do you got? What's going on? Yeah. So I've I've not used it. This is not, not a thing that I have used, but it's something that's come up on, you know, when we do, when we're on Laravel News, we've we've to, we've we've talked about it. We've had Sam Curry on on our show to to talk about this in in the past. And what what Saloon does is it gives you the ability to kind of encapsulate HTTP requests to to, to third party services, to external APIs, and things like that behind these classes. And so you can have like a class where you define the base URL for, for those for those listening along. Um, th- this is on stream, so well, Jake can't say this either. But I'm looking at um, it on my screen it, right now. The, yeah, you're looking. Okay, cool. Yeah, so you've got the ability basically in your application to define a base URL, and then you've got default configurations and all that kind of stuff. But then you create request classes for each of your endpoints, and you define specific endpoints. So you might have an integration with GitHub, and then you'd have like a folder, you know, app services GitHub base request, which sends you a base URL, and then you've got or sorry, they, they have the notion of connectors. So the connector is responsible for setting the, the base URL and, and setting up all the scaffolding for that. And then you've got define endpoint, which is where you would specify like, I need to go in the GitHub example to fetch the um, activity stream of a repository. And so what what I've been thinking of this this context, so we I work for a financial services company where we would do asset finance. 
And we're in the process at the moment of integrating with all of our lenders that provide APIs. So you would be possibly unsurprised to know this in the financial services world um, that lots of things are done by spreadsheet, <laughs> like spreadsheets for days, quote calculators, serviceability calculators, all that kind of stuff that determines whether or not you can be lent money is done using, not like these are not simple, like these are very complex spreadsheets, but a lot of it is just like calculate these values and plug it into a giant matrix and figure out like where you land and this is, you know, what you can do. So, but for the ones that we're integrating that have APIs, we've kind of got like a very loose structure around how that looks. And then it's essentially re-implementing the same thing over and over again to, to do a quote and to submit an application to a lender. And so what I'm trying to look at, and the, and the, the issue that we have is that we're still on Laravel 6 and we're not quite ready to to start migrating it. So we can't use things like this, but this the notion of this like connector request object is very interesting to me because I wanted to, uh, I, what I wanted to talk about was how conceptually you would do this where you've got like, some abstraction that sits on top of the lender itself. Um, and whether it's like, I, I loosely, I think it's just like an interface. You'd have an interface that's like a get quote, submit application. And that would take our data model, send it through those things, transform it, because each each individual lender is going to have their own like um, no structure, you know, yeah. fields that you need to trans, you know, translate to. And so I think, what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is, okay, how do we start from our data structure, pass through some common interface that does the mapping and then sends the request, gets the response, translates that back into a unified interface so that when we're creating new lender integrations, it's all the same Yeah. from a, from a consumption point of view from within our application. Like all we need to do is say like this lender, this application, get a quote, and, and it, it handles all that transformation internally. And a lot of what we do at the moment, just for historical reasons for, you know, this is just how the, the application has been built over time, is just hard-coded strings, you know, arrays of like here's dollar data, square bracket, like this field, this field, this field, and it's doing the mapping in that way, which obviously works. You know, we've built these integrations. We've got, you know, a number of them now already. It's just that thinking about, long-term scalability, maintainability, testability, all of that kind of stuff gets a bit murky when, you know, you want to bring in a new lender. And so having like a standardized set of tests, for example, that say given this application and this lender send a request through this interface and you expect to get back this response. Um, and, you know, you'd use fixtures or mocks or whatever else to, to sort of set those up to say, okay, given these inputs, these are the outputs that we expect to come back and then making sure that we can handle that in, in, a, in a consistent way across the application. And the, and the thing that we're really trying to drive now, um, especially now that as of this week, I've picked up all of the code review for like QA and, and mm. all of that like technical direction stuff after, after a while, which is daunting because I've got like a number of projects on the go that I need to get done myself, but also like a backlog of code that needs to be reviewed. So it's just been like the the duck the duck on the pond like the legs frantically kicking to keep myself afloat <laughs> at the moment and like going backwards and forwards and it's like fixing up okay well you know we've added this new functionality but we haven't added tests kind of thing it's like we need to now like now we need to start testing and like sending postman collections is no longer acceptable in terms of like what is a test and what is testable in in the context of the application like we need to be able to say 
you know, that this is going to work to this known set of assertions and expectations and that that isn't going to change from release to release, from, you know, from feature to feature, from, you know, that we can run these things within within a CI pipeline and know straight away if something has been broken. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so it's it's kind of like trying to really impress that. And it's it's in that sticky stage where like we've got tight deadlines and we have to, but it's like if we Always, don't do it now, right, yeah. um, you know, if we don't start doing it now, then the next time, you know, it'll be, okay, we're under the pump. We don't have time to do it again. And like, and you just keep kicking the can down the road and, it's, and it just doesn't get done. And because there's like not any experience within the team of doing it, a lot of it comes down to like, okay, how how do we do this in the first place? And then sort of introducing it in such a way that we're going to get meaningful tests without kind of slowing down our ability to develop features towards these deadlines. So it's it's, it's been an interesting kind of uh, challenge to go through in terms of getting that all up and running. And um, yeah, I'm, it's just, I wonder if, I guess a long way of going about it. What what is your sort of thoughts in terms of maybe a loose loose folder structure hierarchy of like how you would build this out? Yeah. So I want to make sure I'm yeah with the knowledge that you can't use to learn, but the concept broadly is is interesting. Yeah. So so the good thing I think you kind of already have established is like you guys have a relatively strong set of DTOs within your application that you've I've done a lot of work to document and to make sure that those are consistent, you know, throughout the application. So at what point do those, does your data get sort of um, packaged up in those DTOs? So the, so the DTOs that we're using that, that I've spoken about before is for ingest of a specific application endpoint. So this is a it's a standard for tr- for transfer of financial services information between um, financial institutions, but that's that's on coming to us. We're not we're not using those DTOs. Um, gotcha. Okay. For, so then, from our side, everything is we just assume that eloquent models are the are the data structure. Okay. So that's that's kind of how it works then. So is so your starting point is you're going to be using an eloquent model, which is maybe you know what's what's the What's the name of the model? So you've got an application. Yeah, yeah. The application is like the core entity. I was thinking, like, what's the domain entity? entity. Right. So application is your domain entity. Okay. So you have your application, and then your application is going to be the thing that is going to be used to then get get to request from lenders that they give you a quote Mm -hmm. for an application, right? And so that application is going to contain all the necessary data. Going to be associated with all the other necessary. Uh, have all the relationships back to maybe a customer or something like that. And it's going to, mm-hmm. you know, basically give you the ability to package up all that data and pass that along through to then finally make a request to these lenders. Right. Yeah. 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 So you fine. have, so you have the entity and then what I'm trying to think about is like, you'd probably have like a service, right. Which is sort of a high level abstract uh, concept, which is, you know, get, get quote right now mm-hmm. at that point, do you see yourself as um, as specifying what lender you're using, or do you just get all of the quotes back from all of the lenders? So at the point that we're going to get a quote, we typically have an understanding of which ones might service a given customer mm-hmm. based on the criteria. Yeah. So we say, okay, out of the let's say fifty lenders that we integrate with, these are the three that best fit the application profile for this application. And then we would go and get quotes for three of those lenders. Yeah, so, you'd like, so we know. Yeah, right. 
So you like, so we know like lender A, lender B, lender C. Yeah. These are the ones we want to get quotes for. Yeah. Um. And so yeah, I think I think the service is kind of the way about it. Um. It's just like. Obviously, there's design patterns and things like that, and there's like specific things like is it a manager, is it a factory, like that kind of stuff where you say, okay, with this application and for these three lenders, go do some massaging of the data. Like basically, each from, one of those lenders from, from has the their con- own API, though, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's essentially like you're writing a little mini SDK for each one of them. The only difference is that like you want to probably. And I don't know with Saloon exactly how you would do that because for me, the easiest way that I've found to do that is to define a common interface and then make all of my implementations use those same methods and same properties that are being fed, arguments that are being fed to that. With Saloon, right. each request is a different class. So yeah. I don't know. I don't really know how you do that. Well, so, and this Unless, is the thing, right? We'd have the appli- application here, our entity sitting here. Mm hmm. And we've got the saloon stuff sitting over here, okay. but there's that bit in the middle yep. where it's like from from my controller mm-hmm. where I say like, you know, post slash application slash ID slash quote or get quote or whatever you want to call it, and then that takes the ID obviously from the from the application, mm-hmm. and it also takes like an array of lenders. Yes, right. So we sure. take that and then we call something in the middle that's like go get quotes. And then that is responsible for delegating, like resolving each of the the, the lenders, like yeah. their SDKs, yeah. and, and then calling like, okay, get quote on each of these. Yeah, so there's like three things that you need to do basically on each one of those. On each one of those lenders that you're going to be doing, you're going to have a different base URL instead of headers, which is basically your connector, right? So how do they request that I interface with them? Here's the URL that they give me. Here is the headers that they need me to send along to prove that I am who I say I am. Here is any other, you know, accepts JSON, accepts XML. You know what I mean? Like, how do I do that in particular, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's the first thing. The second thing is going to be how your data needs to be transformed in order to be able to send it along to them, right? So that's the second mm-hmm. part, right? So how do I, you know, and that, that could live within the request itself, right? Where it gets the request itself, gets an application, and then it mm-hmm. says parse that application and put it into a format or into like you know a data structure that matches with what the API on the other side is expecting. Then mm-hmm. of course you're going to make the request, and then the third part is when you get it back, transforming it back into some common interface that is going to be respond responding back to your right. uh, the rest of your application, right? So, so yeah, those those three things I think are the three things that you kind of have to to wrestle with and figure out how exactly do you do that? Yeah. Like, is it so yeah, the, the connect and it really, I mean, like we're using some of the language that saloons are to define, right? You have the connector, you have the request mm-hmm. and you have the response. Those are the three things that you really are unique for each one of these things. So um, the application is going to be the same for each one of them. The response is hopefully going to be the same back from each one of them, but those, those three additional pieces are going to be different for each one of them. And hopefully that shouldn't be too terribly bad. The only time where you might end up with some weirdness around that is you know for some apis that i've dealt with it's not a single call sometimes there's like a an authentication mm-hmm. call i have to make first yeah and then they authenticate give and me a token request. back yeah exactly to mm-hmm. make my next request with so yeah sometimes it's not just as simple as saying uh okay request make your call it's like well there's a pre right. there's a pre-step to some of them and yeah. I suppose you could still wrap that up. It might even be a post up, step. Sure, yeah, exactly. Where you like oh. make the request for a quote and that sends you back like an, a token and then you have to like check 
have I got, you know, have you finished? Have you finished? Oh, ah, finished. interesting. Gotcha. So there's that, that kind of thing as well. We, I mean, I don't know if that's the case. I haven't looked at the, which the is why specific too, integrations, but that's say, totally a thing that could happen. I would almost do like a chained, like, um, like, you know, like a do a job chain sort of thing. I'm guessing this, mm-hmm. like, these aren't synchronous requests that you're hoping to kick off, right? It's basically give me a quote. And then you say for these three lenders, one, two, three, and then is it a background job that you're going to kick those off to? And then you could do the batch job processing where it's like, you know, you have, well, you can't do that because you don't have the latest versions of Laravel. So correct. Yeah. So I think I'm I'm fairly sure it all happens like synchronously in the browser. So that's okay. I think. How long do these, how long do these APIs typically take to respond? A couple of seconds. Like it's not not bad. That's actually impressive. It's like, it's, it's kind of expected that, you know, these, that you sit there and see a loading spinner while this is happening because that's, you know, just how financial services work. So I think that, that that's probably about where I was thinking. It's like all of this side of the the process is kind of the same. It's always going to be a request with a bunch of lender IDs that we map to then, you know, classes that handle it. We send that through some manager service class so then goes okay for each of these i need to go and new up this class yeah, be like and then a factory. fire off the request right and then i think this is where we see dtos again is that we have like a quote response dto mm. that then yeah. is responsible for like being the canonical like this is what we want all of the data to look like when it comes back right. so that we can then take that and then present it in our application but then each of the lenders could extend from that base thing and define their own like from lender. Yeah. Um, so it'd be like a DTO. So you'd have like quote response, which would be abstract, which would define a from lender static constructor. Mm-hmm. And then that would take the request. The response. From the lender. The, the response from the lender. And it would be responsible for then mapping mm-hmm. the lender fields onto the DTO. Yeah. So that you know that in when we're handling the response to then, you know, display that back to the user, you could just like for each responses as response and you know that that is a quote response DTO and then you know like amount will be there, maximum term, balloon, well, all of these things would be there in a consistent format and then each of the individual lender response handlers, like DTO handlers that had extended from that abstract class would be responsible for mapping it and that kind of unifies the interface from the consumption point of view to then get that data back yeah because otherwise this could be a total mess i mean i don't know how you would even do that if you didn't have some standard you know dto that you wrapped that sort of response or not wrapped but transformed it to because you know you what you want to do obviously is you want to be able to as much as possible eliminate conditionals when dealing with these sorts of things. The fewer paths mm-hmm. you have to go down, the better. Now there are going to be paths, spots where you have to split off, obviously, but as much as possible, being able to limit that to like a single class, right? So once once you've specified what that is, mm-hmm. here's this lender. Okay, well, I know how to take an application and transform that for that lender. It's no longer conditional at that point. You've told it. Right. This is the lender. Here I go. Okay. Now I'm in with the class, and the class knows what it's getting. And the class knows how to handle itself. But you mm-hmm. know, uh, you know, I think the mistake people make is when they try and do something like, we're going to have a single thing that is going to be responsible for determining the connector, and then also conditionally say like, okay, if it's this lender, then do th- make this little change. And if it's this lender, then do this little change, all in one place. Right. That's a disaster. Yeah. That's a freaking disaster, and it's yeah. really difficult to test too. 
So yeah, yeah, I, I think, would break them I all mean, people into their are just own kind classes. Of, yeah, people are kind of, from what I've observed personally, is that people are kind of scared of creating new classes because then they get this paralysis around, like, what do I call this? Where do I put it? Like, And I like JMAX kind of methodology with that is just put it in, like, a blah folder, like just you know, like doesn't matter what it's called. Just shove it all there until the patent reveals itself, and yeah, then move exactly. it. Exactly, yeah, kind of thing. Because once you have an understanding of okay, these are all the things that are the same. These are the things that are different. This is how we need to group them up. And it might just be that it's like you know, lenders slash quotes, lenders slash submissions, and then inside of that, they've all got their own like duplicated folder structure. But it's like lenders slash quotes slash lender a slash DTOs and requests and responses and then you've got like your thing in there that is responsible for like the quote response handling and all of that kind of stuff um, i mean you even honestly could i mean you, you could all have it in a flat folder structure you could you like totally would... could start out that way you know and the reason i say that is so i've been working with our new developer trying to do this as much as possible uh, for him you know what a holdup has been is he'll get partway through and he'll look at it and say oh this is messy i should clean this up and so he'll clean mm. it up and then he'll, but the, the, the feature still isn't done yet. So now he starts yeah. adding on to it again. And it's like, but I, I've already made some decisions that are hard to kind of go back on. So now I've really lost a lot of the flexibility that I can have as far as what solutions are pr- available to me. So I told him, you know, trying to help him understand like the red, green refactor whole thing. I was like, dude, write the ugliest code you can write to just get it to work. Like I was, the yeah. illustration I gave is sort of like, if you have a person who's like working with clay, and they're trying to like make a pot, right? They don't start with the bottom of the pot and then try and add more clay after like they put all of it on at the, the at the very beginning. You got to get all of it out there first before you can start shaping it. Like you just got to have the code before you can start making it look good and even breaking it out and abstracting. Otherwise, you're going to make decisions that are going to influence or other hinder otherwise hinder your possibilities that you have right. available. So it might even be worth if you literally just, I mean, I know I just said a minute ago, don't do the whole conditional thing, but just to be able to see it all in one place, if you mm-hmm. did just chuck it all in one spot and then be like, okay, here are the common things. We know we're going to extract from this, but let's just get it all in the same spot first and then start pulling it apart after we see the common patterns that are there. Yeah. 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 I think that's like, we're, we're kind of there. Like I have seen some of this abstraction, but it's, we like, we like static helpers and static like service locators and things like that so anytime we need to like potentially create some duplicate like anytime we have something that may be used multiple times we create like this static class that's got a whole bunch of getters on it that and i'm like okay we're gonna nip that in the bud because every time you do that they they go and like start querying the database and it's like and and this is these are those like quote dangers that people other people have blamed Laravel for a sort of deal have blamed Laravel for like, cause it makes it so easy to do this stuff that, you know, it's obviously the framework's fault and I, I, the framework lends itself to it for sure, but it also allows you to basically do whatever the heck you want, however you want to do it. And that just happens to be the simplest way, but we've been fighting with like slow pages and like N plus one queries and things like that, that, that just crop up all the time because we, I've seen these things like that. And so Part I'm not sure it, I, I understand exactly what you mean. So, like, are they using just static, like public static functions? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Or are they Sorry, using? Yeah, I, I like I say it's a static class. It's basically a class that only has static methods in it. Okay. Yeah. So they'll have like public static 
get lender name. And, when and that's it, responsible for taking like a slug and then going and querying the database to go and get the name for that slug as opposed to making that part of like the entry point of the application in the controller that says, okay, I need to do this and then like lazy load with lender or whatever to get the name and then like and i'm and i'm getting to the point now it's like okay we'll put an accessor on the model you know sure we don't store the logo the logo is derived from like a specific string so it's like you know lender dash lender name dot jpeg and and so they've created like this static method on the like in this static class that takes a string queries the database gets the lender then concatenates these things together i'm like we'll just if you've already got the lender, put this on on the lender model right. as an accessor right. to do that. And that way, if it ever changes, it's all in one place. It means you can test it in one place. And it means that if in the future we go from using a computed value, a computed property for the, the lender using an accessor to storing the logo as a, as a field on the database, you don't have to go and update a whole bunch of code to change like how this is happening because you just reference that field, you delete the accessor totally. kind of thing. Yep. So. There's just like a lot of these things which are probably brought in from other places. I know that we've spoken about some patterns that I've seen in the code base that are like very code igniter inspired, where it's like instead of creating like a class that does something, you have a class that news up another controller. Mm, yeah, yeah. That then calls methods on a controller, which Ooh, yes. I've never used code igniter, oh, but that's I've heard totally that that's it. a code igniterism. Yeah. And so. I'm like, this is fine, but number one, don't call it a controller because that's not what it is within Laravel. And number two, use, you know, um, dependency injection, use the, the, you know, the container, use the app, make or whatever else. Don't new these things up because then we get places where we're integrating with box.com. Okay. And in in development, in testing, we don't we don't actually want to hit that. We want to use a fake, but because we're doing, you know, new box, whatever, as opposed to resolving that from the container, there's no way to to mock that, to yeah. swap that out. Like because you know, in testing, you would just yeah. swap that out with with a with a null object essentially, or just yeah. something that returns static values. So now that I'm starting to see more and more of the code, and it like it's hard for me because I see these things and I say, let's not do it like this. Let's do it, you know, the the proper way. Sure. And it's and it's like it comes back on the developers that are like, you know, you've been here five minutes. Why are you making us change the things that we've been doing the whole time? And it's like, well, we're at the point now where we need to sort of start thinking about much bigger scale. Um, we just migrated to AWS two weeks ago. And this coming Monday, which will be yesterday by the time this episode comes out, we're going to start seeing a huge influx of, of users. And I'm like, this stuff ain't going to cut it anymore because it'll get us so far because we've over-provisioned our, our application services and our EC2 instances. Yeah, and like yeah. everything's hugely over-provisioned at the moment. But throwing money at the problem is not going to solve underlying architectural issues. It's not going to solve underlying um, technological decisions that we've made in the past. And we can't keep repeating those things to move forward. Yeah, I had this exact situation with a... a um an app that was built, I had a part of it. I had a part in building the initial portion where users would sign in. So like I handled, it was like OAuth back in the day and when it was still sort of complicated and sort of the basic bones of it. But then mm-hmm. they added this group feature that would track all these views. It was almost like an analytics thing. 
we'll track all these views to a link that you had provided and all that stuff, right? So you could do that individually, but you could also be a part of a group. Uh, so think like, okay, if I want to find all of the visits for all the users that belong to this group, but only from the time that they use, they joined this group, because I can't count them for all the ones that they did before they joined this group. Like, like you could see how those queries could quickly get out of control, right? Mm-hmm. And so we did way over provision this thing and continue yeah. to do so. And at some point we literally ran out of like, you were, it was like, it was not worth the money that it was costing to keep up with it. It just, we literally had to like turn off the group feature. It was like, this is insanity. Like it was crashing the server yeah. and, and it was just, couldn't, yeah. couldn't do it. And it was like, you know, it was going to cost us like $5,000 a month to keep this thing going. It was like, it's not worth it. You can't do that. Mm. Um, yeah. So you're correct. I mean, it will work for a while as long as your needs aren't too great. But there is a ceiling to that thing. And at some point, it becomes more expensive to run the server than it does to f- have have the developers fix the problem. Yeah, it's a, it's like it's the same kind of concept of like you can't outrun a bad diet. Mm. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. You know, if you are if you are if you are consuming more calories, if you're than, eating root beers, then you uh, are if you're drinking root beer floats <laughs> at, at 11 o'clock. o'clock yeah. yeah. Right. If you're um if you're consuming more calories than you're burning, like it doesn't you can like the root beer float is like, you know, four hours of running or whatever else, you know, that, that kind of thing is, is the same kind of thing with data. Like if you're running 500 queries on a page, when you could be running four, you know, you, you can, you can throw money at the problem only so far, you know, until suddenly you go, well, we can't afford to spend any more money on more resources. We need to, and, and like, I recognize this very early on and I've been saying this basically since I started, I'm like, we can, we can throw hardware at the problem now just to get us by. You know, because we were kind of on on tight timelines in terms of like we've got to move by the first of July. We've got to get you know onto AWS. We've got to be ready for this influx of users. That's fine. So we over provisioned everything heaps. But you know, if if you've got like a thousand users hit your application and they all hit the same endpoint, and that endpoint is running three hundred queries to return some data, that's you know three hundred users by a thousand queries. Yikes. Oh, sorry. Sorry. 300, 300 queries by a thousand users. Yeah. Like it's going to be problematic. And this is where like those static classes are problematic. Yes. You get the desired outcome. You get, you know, you get the result that you're looking for, but it means that you've, you know, you've loaded the application. The application has loaded the lender. The lender has then gone, oh, I need to go and get the name. So I need to go and like call this static method, which then queries the database two more times Yikes. to then come back. And it's like, do, do we not see, yes, it works. Understand that it works. Can we keep doing this? Absolutely not. And so it's like, it's, it's having that conversation. And it's like, this is not about how you're writing code. This is not about you. This is about the long-term scalability and maintainability of this application. If we can fix these things, like the permission system that we have makes me very sad um, oh, no. because it does, it does query and requery and it's like every time you do a check like it doesn't cache sorry it uses the array cache mm-hmm. because of because of some complication i don't know the exact specifics of it but they couldn't use like the file cache or something like that so they use the array cache and they say like cache colon colon uh driver or whatever it is you know parentheses array and then they say remember and then they give it the key and then they say remember this for 24 hours i'm like <sighs> You can't remember something in the array cache for 24 hours because the array cache only exists for the duration of that request, that request. for that user. Yeah, that's what the user or the array cache and like testing. You know, it's like 
Right. It's not actually so, doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, the, you know, there's little things like that. It's like we need to make it work, so we make it work for now. But like we've, they, they've never really had any insight into, you know, no, no debug bar because we're using, like it's all API. There's nowhere to put debug bar. You never, you never look at mm-hmm. that, right? Yeah, you right. Can't put, you can't put debug bar into an API because it just doesn't work. Um, so there have been scenarios where I've needed to profile where I've where I've dipped into Telescope, which is beautiful mm-hmm. because it means that I can like run that in Postman, hit that endpoint. And look at telescope and see what just happened and go, holy moly, that just ran 600 queries. Why? And so, you know, I think we spoke about, well, I tweeted about it for sure that we got like an endpoint from eight seconds down to one second just by removing n plus one queries. Yeah. So, you know, those kinds of things, you just need to, and like, it's just, it just hasn't been a factor for consideration because it's just been like, build this thing, build this thing. And now it's like, if you want to keep this, this train rolling, We've got to start thinking about it now before it gets out of hand. Because once the thing we, is too, once is we like, get going too far, once they're taught that stuff, like it's easy to it's easy to remember. It's just like when the only when the only goal in front of you is hit the deadline, then yeah, sure. it, that's that does happen, right? It's just like just get it working. It doesn't matter. Yeah, but eventually, it's when the proof of concept becomes the production deployment. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, so yeah, it's just like, and they're receptive to it. Hundred percent. They that's go, awesome. Yeah, I get it. That's key. Um, which is which is great. It makes me feel a little bit less bad about telling them not to do the thing that they've been doing for the last three years. Because like it's hard as as an outsider coming into a business where people have been there for three years and you've been here for six months and you're like we can't do this anymore. And they're like, why not? We've been doing it for three years. And it's like, well, because no one has has you know really looked at it yeah. at this way. And and like the CTO to his credit, he's been fantastic at making sure that we build like exactly what we need. There's diagrams and there's wow, like that's, ERDs that's and everything impressive. is like super well thought out. Like I'm, it's probably the most comprehensively documented and thought out that's application incredibly that I've ever rare. worked on. That's incredibly rare. Um, but this is the thing, like we don't have any, any of the other stuff. So it's very well documented. We know everything that should happen. It's just that we don't have like the test in place, the automated test to say that this is definitely what's happening. We were adding some new functionality the other day and I was reviewing the code. I went, hmm, we don't have any tests for this at all. Like I, I went, I spent like three months putting tests in. I'm like, oh, this is a, an area of the code that we didn't document because, oh, we didn't add tests for, or oh, I didn't add tests for, let's not say we, I didn't add tests for, because I was only putting in tests in place for the public API, like the things that we had yeah. documented as part of the public API. But there is parts of the public API that are read-only that are internal to our application. So there are things that are like seeded into the application, but they are not. And, and like any any user of the application with an API key can read those resources, but they can't create, they can't update, they can't delete. So I'm like, oh, I better go and backfill these tests. Sure. Because we're adding to it now. So now is the time. Absolutely. Like we need to have yep. the guarantee that we need to know that these things that we say are read-only are actually read-only. And that was when I discovered that amongst all of those resources that should have been read-only, there was a little lonely resource that was not read-only. And so where I was expecting like a 405 method not allowed, I was getting back a 403. I'm like, well, <laughs> we shouldn't be getting a 403 because that, that there should be nothing handling that code, that that request to send back a 403. I'm like, oh, we have an oversight here. They'd like this endpoint. And fortunately, like that's not the most egregious thing in the world in terms of like I'm expecting a 405, but I got a 403. The end result is the same. You were not allowed to carry out that action. But when we're expecting a 405, especially when we've got like, so we have these resources 
we've got an array of them. There's like five or six. And so we use a data provider to iterate through each of those resources for each of the user groups, uh, user roles. So we've got an admin, we've got a user, we've got like different users. And like each of those should be able to read, but none of them should be allowed to create, update or delete. And so we do this using data providers because sure. all the tests are exactly the same. Like there's, there's no variation. Yeah. And so when you're doing that and you say, okay, go run the test in this folder, that they all go, okay, for each of the six or seven user roles, go and run these five tests, create, read, update, delete, and make sure you get these responses. But when you start seeing something that you don't expect, you have to go and figure out why. So, yeah, we're getting there. It's just, and the tests are very slow. I'm trying to figure out the best way of running them because they take the, the full suite on my MacBook, which is which is the old 16-inch in Intel, the work one, not, not the M1, takes 16 minutes to run Oof, the test suite. Boy. And there is there is a memory leak in, like it's some combination of PHP 7.4, Laravel 6 and Symphony 4 and PHP unit. There's like something, there is a bug in PHP that has been open since like 2018 that it still exists in PHP 8.1, hasn't been fixed. So there's no way around this short of upgrading Laravel and PHP and getting to a point where the fixes within those three, four places upstream at least minimize the impact of this bug. But we need the test in place to do that first. So it's like, okay, so now we're starting to talk about setting up pipelines in Bitbucket to run the test. Not and, and like they'll fail, but it's not gonna it's not gonna stop us from deploying code or anything because all that part of the process is still gonna be manual. We'll still be able to just do deploys manually for the time being. But it's like, how do I get this sixteen minute test suite that on my MacBook is sixteen minutes that uses like three and a half gig of RAM? How how do I get that to run in CI? Like how yeah, do I get that exactly. To yeah, right. Because that's a big challenge. It's like if you don't, if you can't do that in a reasonable amount of time, nobody's going to do it. Yeah, nobody's going to do it Correct. either. Yeah. Um. The, I mean, the expectation one. is that at least you're running. But the thing is, if you're making changes in like this core bit that's run by data providers, you kind of got to do it. You can't run the whole thing. You know, then then like they write the code, they send it for pull review. I run the test suite. And I'm like, there's errors here. I'm like, well, I couldn't run the test. I'm like, well, see, that doesn't help anyone. Yeah, exactly. And you, I, you can't be upset at them for not running the test totally. because it's just not capable of doing And the feedback it. So, loop is just so slow. Yeah. So I think the, the what I think is going to work and what I was running some benchmarks on before was to split up the test suite. So we've got like the lint, which goes through and runs like composer check style, which goes and runs... Um, PHP CS fixer with a dash dash check or whatever it is, that will fail the build straight away. Like if your code is not conforming to code style, we're not going to run the rest. Then I'm going to run the unit tests separately because they'll run really quickly. I say really quickly, it's still like four minutes, but it's 1600 odd tests. And then these automated kind of data provider built ones, I'll do as a separate thing. And then there's another set of like feature tests that I will run separately again. So essentially, my test suite, I'm going to split up into three using PHP units group annotations. Mm-hmm. So I can say like the first test exclude yeah. yep, yep. this comma and then like, and so I've just grouped them as like slow. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then another step in the pipeline will be to run the slow ones. And then another step in the pipeline will be to run the resource ones. And theoretically, you can I do can them run in those parallel. three in yeah. parallel. Yeah. So, you know, one takes six minutes, one takes four minutes, one takes seven minutes. Okay, well, that, that seven part minutes total of the then. test yeah. will take seven minutes total instead of we ended you know, up, 20 minutes in death. Yeah, we ended up doing that in, um, in one of our larger applications. One of the ones you worked on, actually, Wilbur Pay. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had when we when we went from Travis CI to GitHub Actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Travis CI used to run our unit tests, then it'd run our Dusk tests, and then so what we did uh, now is GitHub Actions has Dusk tests running separately from our unit tests, and it's way faster. Yeah, way way faster, mm-hmm. and yeah. and that that's huge. So yep, yep, yep. Yeah, um, so we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Where and I, I'm kind of in two minds about it because I want to get it set up because we kind of need it for assurance for the stuff that we're doing at the moment. But I also want to move to to GitHub, and I'd I'd like to do that first if I can, so I don't have to set it up on Bitbucket and then have to go back and set it up on yeah. on GitHub again a yeah. second time. So we'll see what happens. But it's just busy, busy. And then so the we did the AWS migration last week, which went well, went fine. Um, my my piece was like 16 minutes start to finish from like including backing up the existing database, migrating it to the new server and, and kicking everything over. So you you and finished migrating like, in less time than it took to run the tests. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then the rest of the team had to go through and do all like the manual tests to make sure that all of the pieces were working that, you know, and like it was fine. We had done it once. We'd, we'd migrated the entire application to staging and run through everything. So we knew what the test plan was. It was just a time-consuming thing that we had to go through and, and do all that stuff. So it was like a bit over two hours that that, that it took to do that. Um, but but that process went fine. The integration that I had been working on that that we had deployed on the first of July, we've been just like doing little spot fires and bug fixes and things like that, um, just for bits that we hadn't tested that we didn't have sample data for. There's some inconsistencies between like the spec and what the the external party is sending us. So. That's going to go into full circulation uh, on Monday, and that's going to see a quite significant increase in traffic. So I'm going to be on the edge of my seat most of the week, just like in case we start, because we're going to start seeing. You know, this is the thing: you push something into production, and you can you can test and cater to things as best you can. Um, and we we kind of try and handle edge cases and bugs. Like if something slips through the cracks and we don't know how to handle it, we will swallow the entire payload we'll store it in s3 we'll log it like this request id failed with you know whatever the error was and that way we can go and like proactively see these things okay i need to fix that go and put the test in put the fixes in but there's like stuff that they've been sending us that's just invalid like and so it's like well we we just until they fix it there's nothing we can do and of course once they fix because they're they're in this big .NET application, which is like slow and red tapey and like corporate and a yay enterprise kind of thing. Like their deploys take 20 minutes to run kind of thing. And they have to go through the full like review process. You've got to go through the steps. You've got to get it approved. You've got to get it signed off, yada, yada, you know. Mm-hmm. And then by the time they deploy it, it's like, okay, now you can go and, you know, fix this really quickly on your end because people need to use it. So yeah, gosh, it's uh, it's fun and games, but um. Yeah, that, that gives me some clarity, especially that Saloon stuff. Obviously, we can't use Saloon right now. It'd be nice to to be able to use that because that would just be a straight swap. But that that kind of idea, especially like the DTOs, um, DTOs and value objects, I've I've seen a great use for like in this this lot of work that I've been doing, being able to just kind of know that the data that I have inside of my application is already valid and and not having to worry about like validating it anywhere. Yeah, exactly. That's like, always the once, huge pain. Mm-hmm. Once I have it massaged into the format prescribed by the DTO, I know that everything there is valid. Yep. Because the DTO will have like failed ages ago if if it was not valid. So that's that's something like if you're handling external data to your application that can come from different places and you want to massage it into like a common format, DTO is beautiful. And then yeah, 
uh, th- those are the takeaways, I think. Um, Frank DeJong actually has a uh, really good post on on something like this called Fra- it's it's on his blog Frank on software. But mm-hmm. he talks about where does his validation live, and this is a this was a huge thing that I had with one of my previous developers where he would literally validate all the all the way down the chain, every step he was going to use something he was checking if it was valid, and it mm-hmm. it was just super cumbersome. And what it ended up doing is it muddied up the code everywhere, right? You're always checking over and over and over and over and over again. And then every test was checking over and over and over and over and over again if it was right. A, if it was right. And it's like if you pass in a object, if you pass in a value object, if you pass in a DTO, then you know. You know it's good. And so you don't have to do that, right? So Frank mm-hmm. talks about some of this, like where does this live? And then he talks about basically shapes and types. Um, so how quickly do I need to get it out of the request and into a DTO? Right. And so he talks about, talks about that. I, w- I won't talk about all of it here, but maybe we can share it in the show notes. It's, it's a really good one. I'll send it to you uh, in our telegram chat here, but uh, I think it'd be helpful for, for sure. Hey, we should probably wrap this one up. We're uh, getting close to an hour here. So yeah. uh, any final Let's words? No, I think I, you know, that's it. We can, maybe we some maybe if you stuff. try, try a spider, you should, you should tweet me. And okay. Tell me what you think. I will. <laughs> maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll try it with my kids this yeah. week. We'll see. Um, next time, I would love to talk about using S3 to upload uh, directly uh, without mm-hmm. using Laravel. So, you know, you can use Laravel to handle large file uploads, right? But what you have to do is you have to change your upload max file size and a couple of these different things to allow your application to handle large large files. And then it also eats up mm-hmm. resources on your on your server. Yeah. But you can... Uploading to you and then you uploading exactly. to S3 as well. Exactly. Yeah, the two-step. And so mm-hmm. you can get around that by using pre-signed put requests and mm-hmm. something like FilePond or DropZone or something like that. There are a couple caveats to it though. And I, uh, some things that we discovered that I think are worth mentioning to anybody else who might be interested in doing something like that. We basically wanted to duplicate or replicate uh, Dropbox file requests where you essentially send mm-hmm. somebody an email and say, hey, you have a large file that you can't send through email because of email size limits. Can you put it yeah. here instead? And then when they put it there, it uses S3 to upload it, just like I was talking about without hitting Laravel. And then what we do is... And then gives them a signed URL. Exactly. Gives them a signed URL through an email to, mm-hmm. you know, because you can't attach that to an email, you have to send a signed URL to allow them to download it. So anyway, yeah. we sort of replicated that and uh, learned some cool lessons along the way. So I'd love to talk about that a little bit too. And nice. SES, emailing. There were some interesting things I learned about that as well. So next time, we'll talk about those next time. And mm-hmm. uh, yes. yeah, it'll be fun. Okay, everybody. Thanks, everybody, for hanging out with us today. Find uh, show notes for this episode at northmeetsouth.audio slash 122. If you like the show, please rate it up in your podcatcher of choice. Five stars would be much appreciated. Hit us up on Twitter at Michael Durinda or at Jacob Bennett or at North South Audio. All right, folks. Till next time, we will see you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.